Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over 6 billion Interact Debit transactions, the equivalent of 160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hey everyone, it's Friday, August 9th. I've got Shannon Proudfoot and McLean's and David, Re- not David Reevely, I've got David Mosscrop in the studio. Did you like that little fake there? That was pretty good. David Reevely is away on holiday, but it wasn't too hard to find an equally wonderful David in Ottawa. A, a white man named David in Ottawa. You must have looked for I, minutes. Oh, minutes. Very long minutes. Um, David, I can't sum up all that you do in one sentence, but I'm, I'll sort of top line items here. You are a political commentator, writer, and author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. That's a mouthful. Are we going to make bad political decisions this fall? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it's good to have that certainty going in. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Maybe maybe if, if people buy the book, we'll make fewer of them. Right. Mm. That's a good pitch. I did oh. just buy it the other day. Yes, with me beside you pointing it out. (laughs) That's how we do it in retail, one at a time. The one at a time sales I stand by, I just sort of go into chapters and stand at the front beside it when people come by. That looks like a pretty good one over there. Yeah, my mother did that once when I was back home. We were in the bookstore and she was pointing out to someone that that was my book and I mortified, just took off to the back corner. Well, it's going to be an airport soon. Right? Yeah, we're into the second printing and into airports. And is that a good is, market for books? I would imagine. Eh? I you think have, like, so. a captive audience. Yeah, and the airport bookstores are small. Oh, yes. So that's you've got to be pretty good to get into them. I think it's a good airport book. I think it's a good it, plain book. I think book. it is too. Yes. Okay, well, it's great to have you here also um, because you're going to be, and we'll get into this later on, but more of a regular feature here on the pod with the upcoming series Open to Debate, which we've told you a little bit about, um, but we're looking forward to that. So... Yes, we'll get right into it. First up, according to a new United Nations report released this week in order to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change effects, we're going to need to make some serious changes to our agriculture sector. It's not uh, just what we eat, like lowering our meat intake, it's how we make it. Around 25% of all greenhouse gases can be attributed to growing, producing, and transporting food. Beyond that, more than 500 million people live in areas affected by these practices. So, Think of all the eroding, degrading environments that are used for crop. Those horrible photos that you see of like the the land that's being used for crop cultivation. Anyway, on all of this, it's it's going to affect our food supply in a serious way. So the report was developed by a group of scientists from more than fifty countries around the world, including a few Canadians. What I'm curious to know from you guys, what you think sort of stands out from this report from the others? Because I I are um, IPCC, the inter governmental panel on climate change has been putting out a series of these reports throughout the past couple of maybe year and a bit and the they're last all november october really the w- yes i think changed the conversation and sharpened people's attention that was the one that sort of said like we have 15 years to act right and and put very pointed targets on it like one and a half to two degrees or like things are getting really bad and it felt yes. like that was a sea change to me in Ordinary people and in the political discourse actually starting to pay attention. Yeah, I agree. I think that was sort of a a, a key moment in, in the conversation shifting. Um, but I think this one particularly, I mean, it, it's more focused on land um, because I'm always kind of interested too in like the, the sociological perspective. Like what is going to – what makes people kind of – 
Well, this kind of grounds it, right? This says here is what is going to change and yeah. what it will look like on the ground. It's sort of very pragmatic in a way. Um, it's still a sprawling report, though. Like it's sort of it's almost got um. I don't know if circular logic is the right term, but they look at how our how our farming and agriculture and land use practices are contributing to climate change and then in turn how climate change will affect crop yields and things like that. Mm. And then that in turn has spin-off effects where you have climate refugees and, you know, widespread starvation, particularly in the southern hemisphere. Like the possible ramifications are quite terrifying from crop failures and lower yields to even like a more subtle one, like less nutritious crops. Um, it, like I worry that we're getting to the point where the scale of this, right when it should be motivating, is just paralyzing. I heard somebody once say, the challenge is to realize in time that something needs to be done and do it before we realize that it's too late to do anything. And that there's a split second in which that can be true, and it's pretty much right now. Which echoes the IPCC report in, in October that said you've got 12 to 15 years. So I think that's the moment we're in. And I kept thinking about the Sumerians who 4,000 years ago farmed their fields until they were so salinated that they couldn't farm them anymore. They knew about fallow field farming. They could have let them fallow and, and let the salt wash away, but they didn't. They kept farming because they needed to support the tax base. They needed to produce food. They didn't want to change. And that was it. It was what Susan Wise Bauer called the first environmental disaster. 4,000 years later, we're doing the exact same thing in a very similar way. And we think of ourselves as clever and evolved, but we're making the same mistakes that were made 4,000 years ago. And this report just kept reminding me that we, we are the Sumerians. Oh, yeah. God. You know? Yeah. And, and to, like, to your point about the kind of moment where, there, where you can do something, the longer we wait, the more drastic the things are that need to be done. Mm -hmm. I saw, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a meme, so it's dumb, except sometimes memes have a way of crystallizing mm -hmm. things. That, you know, in the 80s, the environmental message was, I think it, it was the meme was set up over and over as like a dad talking to his kid. And in the 80s, it was like, it's okay, just recycle. Just like, you know, mm. use your blue box. And then it was, just don't use aerosol cans anymore. And then it was like, <laughs> just don't do this. And now we're at a point where it's like, we need to shift every single thing we do. Yeah. We need to bend politics to mm -hmm. our will in all kinds of different ways. It is daunting. I blame the 80s and, and earlier environmentalism frames in some part for the problems we're facing today. I mean, it was very convenient to say reduce, reuse, recycle. It's all convenient. It's all easy. You just drop your your specific refuse into a blue box and you put the blue box on the curb and don't worry about it. In fact, people didn't. They didn't, you know, in fact, they didn't ask what happens next. Right. Is this actually being recycled? Right. And subsequently, we learned that in many cases it wasn't. Uh, or in, in the case of, of CFCs and aerosols and, and acid rain, that was solved pretty quickly. But it was solved quickly because there was a cheap alternative that didn't really bother anybody. Now, 30 years later, 40 years later, we're going to be asking people to do significant things to change their lives significant, in significant ways right. that they won't be easily accustomed to. And we're used to quick, easy, convenient. And now we're going to have to do long-term, right. difficult, and, and inconvenient, like, as the IPCC report suggests, you know, eating a plant-based diet and eating less meat. But how much of that, because I, I wanted to talk about that, too, because I think, so part of, uh, like, solutions, right, it's, it's, and actually it should be noted, like, Canada is um, relatively advanced when it comes to, like, food sustainability and um, food sustainability practices and things like re reforestation and, and soil management and crop diversification and whatnot. But is there, an, so, yeah, one, is there an opportunity for Canada to sort of, 
take more of a lead, but also to um, what, like I always get frustrated with these reports because I don't know what I can do as an individual. Maybe it is the meat thing. Maybe it's the eating less meat and and these beyond beyond the uh, beyond meat beyond the meat yeah. burgers which is which is i mean i'm you know not one for endorsing anything except for my own book <laughs> but the, they're not bad burgers but there's you know, i know they're not they're I, not bad yeah. to your point like i'm finding that as like as i personally have become much more finely attuned to mm-hmm. something's got to give here and thinking about how to change things for my own family. And then sometimes that feels futile or facile or silly. Mm-hmm. And I know that's also a debate that's playing out politically. I see it all the time on yeah. Twitter. If I yes. or another reporter mentions carbon tax or whatever, mm-hmm. one of the talking points is, well, why are we asking individual people to sacrifice when there's big industrial yes. polluters, which is a fair point to a point, but it's the the problem of a collective action problem, right? Is there's always someone else to slough it off yeah. on. And it's un. It's, it's unclear, at least to me personally, I'm talking more as a consumer here mm-hmm. than as an analyst, yeah. um, sort of where this needs to live. I mean, there are two things that any person, almost any person out there, can do immediately to, in direct response to the IPCC report. And one is eat less beef, eat less meat in general, eat more plants, uh, more plant-based diet. And why diet. is it? Because, because cow, the methane. Cows and methane, um, and it land. produces a lot of uh, wheat and water to produce right. a kilogram of beef versus a kilogram right. of like the, I remember of beans, one of the highlights right? from that report was something like 25% of our crops are not grown for human consumption, right. but for other crop consumption. Right. So it's also a cyclical thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, there's exactly, it's a cycle of, it, it's more resource intensive and emissions intensive to produce beef than it is to produce, you know, vegetables, other vegetables, peas or, or, yeah. peas or, or you know, legumes, whatever it might be, but also the methane problem. Um, and uh, but so you know you eat less beef and less meat in general. But the second thing is trees. I mean, there is an increasingly convincing argument that planting billions of trees, which will act as a carbon sink, will recapture carbon in the atmosphere, is is what scientists uh, the quote of something like staggering or massive effect. Mm on reducing the effects of climate change mm. and carbon in the atmosphere. We need to plant billions of trees, which is an effort that will need to be supported by governments, by industry, by individuals who donate to organizations that plant trees. Mm. Uh, it won't save us, but it's something you could you could donate 50 bucks to a tree planting organization. Yeah. I mean, there are there are things individuals can do, but I think Shannon's right. I mean, it's there's only so much you can do as an individual at some point. It's, yes. it's also an industry problem. And what's bothering me now is the way, particularly in Canada as we head into an election, even that discussion, even trying to find that out in a good faith way, is becoming yeah. a proxy war. Like, it's becoming freighted with all this other stuff. Like, yes. if people like us who consume news, digest it, process it for a living, yeah. Talk are about confused, like, right. it, it's oh. because it's all becoming larded with different agendas and and then the way it's going to map onto the federal campaign just is leading me to despair. Yes, exactly. Like, like a, the, a, a policy like carbon tax has become completely Yeah, pol- that's policy. not about the merits yes, of it, the right. efficacy, whether it goes far enough, that's about whether you're some, you know, pig-headed hick mm-hmm. or some out-of-touch elite. Like, that's right. what it feels it like. It becomes culture war. Yeah, yeah. exactly. With everything else. I mean, exactly. th- there is a, a rift opening uh, at the industry level, too. And at the government, in between governments, so you know Norway, for instance, divesting from fossil fuels for their sovereign wealth fund, looking and saying, okay, well, the next fifty hundred years of wealth return is not going to be found in fossil fuel companies, so we're going to divest and diversify. Universities are doing this in some cases too, and there's pushes by students to get them to do it. So, uh, but the other is com- companies that are saying, okay, there's a big problem, we got to do something, and leading the charge in many cases. Insurance companies mm. who are re- realizing that they can't underwrite policies 
in, in, a, in a world in which climate change is, is wrecking hmm. the way that we live. So they're starting to realize it's an issue. Yeah, that's true. So there are corporate leaders out there. Now they're leading out of what you might call enlightened self-interest. But you, you're going to take the support where you can get it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, if it gets us to the same point or probably yeah. there or whatever. We well, get, because they become heuristics yeah. for, for voters and, and also for politicians who say, okay, at some point I'm going to have to pick a, a side. And I'm going to hope that there are some folks rallying to that side and, and we need support, we need money, et cetera, et cetera. And well, if that side's already populated by not just individuals, but also corporations. Yeah, then it's more of a pull. We'll move on from that. It's going to get a little bit more uh, grim here. But devastating news south of the border this weekend. Two mass shootings uh, occurred in two different American cities, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. The shootings left 31 dead and dozens more injured. The first occurred on Saturday morning at a Walmart in El Paso, one of the busiest storefronts in the state because of its close proximity to the Mexican border. Soon after the incident, the police took a 21-year-old man into custody, who they also believe is the was the author of this racist sort of anti-Hispanic manifesto posted online a few minutes before the shooting. Um, and the, the, the suspect reference, quote, the Hispanic invasion of Texas. It's sort of the, the uh, impetus for this. Um, the second occurred on Sunday in the Entertainment District of Dayton, Ohio. A shooter opened fire, killing nine people and injuring over a dozen more. In Th- 24 seconds. In 24 seconds. Thankfully, within 30 seconds of the first shot, sure. um, you know, or so, police controlled or neutralized the situation, which had been, um, you know, which could have been arguably far more deadly than it was. President Trump, along with his uh, wife Melania, on Wednesday visited two uh, communities offering condolences. He was met with a slew of protesters, many suggesting the president's hateful and divisive rhetoric has caused the pain these two cities are are now in conflicted with. So, which was, to be honest, that did feel like a lot of people are saying, should he have gone, should he have not? If You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If, you, if he didn't go, it would have caused a huge shit storm as well. Um, but I mean, I think there's more and more this consensus that his actions and his language is contributing to a, a, a more hateful or, or divisive society, or at least inspiring those acts of hate. And I think that was particularly true of that first shooting. And I, and I heard Beto O'Rourke's speech. He's from he El Paso. He was pretty extraordinary yes, this week. he um, was. That was a necessary voice of rage. Re- yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he came back from, uh, he was giving a speech somewhere else, and he came back and he, again, sort of drew that line between the president's vocabulary, um, particularly demonizing certain groups, and then the result of things like this. So I'm just wondering if that that line is being drawn a little bit more deeper now. Like, there's well, a real consensus of it. There is, except in the context of Beto O'Rourke's remarks, he was taking the media to task, who were asking him asinine questions like, do you think maybe that these things the president has been saying about Hispanics invading right. and being rapists and thieves might have contributed to this? And he he was unsparing, like, fair, fair enough, saying, yeah. of course it was. Why are you asking me these questions? So I think part of the story of this week has still been this and i'm struggling to control my vocabulary here because i'm just it's yeah. it's just a lot has been just this ridiculous mincing irrational like 
kind of dancing around. Like we saw, you know, the New York Times get just thumped this week for this headline that was, I mean, I forget the exact wording, but Trump urges unity versus racism or something like that. It's like we need to differentiate between an actual effort at unity, a sincere expression of condolence, even one that should be taken seriously on its face versus damage control and and like a, a complete inability to even own it. I mean, he was on the plane from Dayton to El Paso and shit posting, yeah. um, you know, Democratic politicians who were not towing the line. I also think it's no coincidence. Sorry, I'm getting really fired no, up. It's good. That they released this hideous sizzle reel with this like cock rock music over top of it of him greeting people in the hospital. Yeah, that's disgusting. And that he's so desperate to prove that he was greeted with adulation. I think tells you that insofar as that man has a capacity to feel culpability, I think he might be feeling it this week a little bit, Mm. or at the very least feeling the political inconvenience of it, because they are working even harder than they normally do to shore up his fragile little ego. And I find that telling, Mm -hmm. but I'm mad and I'm going to let David talk. That was a good speech. (laughs) And there's whispers of of support for background checks, for instance, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, Wayne LaPierre had to effectively go and say you know maybe you should be very very careful about how you tread going forward <laughs> so the nra is worried uh, and in structural decline so the, i do think that don't you find that fascinating that maybe what could undo the nra is like a structural problem like effectively like their brand just going stale not They're, that they will be like maybe but also maybe. yeah and, and also the the nra is you know exists as a reaction to perceived threat. So the the NRA thrives in contradistinction to the occupant of the Oval Office at the time. So when Obama wins, the NRA is doing fantastically well and gun sales surge. Right. When Trump wins, it goes the other way. Right. And so in, in some sense, you know, the virus um, ends up turning on itself in those situations. The question is, you know, will it do so sufficiently to, to stamp it out completely? Uh, who knows? I mean, it, it could, but the I, I don't. I genuinely don't know what you say anymore. Because you know, the the United States is structurally racist. It's been structurally racist since before it was a country. It it got along institutionally, in part for so long uh, as well as it did because there was a quote unquote consensus around the racial question, and Democrats didn't tinker with the South. And then Lyndon Johnson did with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And then we got the rise of a particularly virulent, nasty reaction from the South. There's just nothing you can do other than restructure the whole country. And I think the gun violence is in part a confluence of that structural racism and the fact that there are far, far, far too many guns in the country. Not as a cultural problem, but as well, in part as a cultural problem, but largely as a uh, lobby problem. How do, you, how do you deal with something like that? I saw a stat last night, I've never quite seen it presented this way, that looked at um, the overall number of guns and the guns per capita, and it was a ranking. And I had never seen it this way, 393 million guns in the U.S. I don't know what percentage, I I should have looked it up, of Americans do not own guns. So then do the math on that. I think it was 120 guns per 100 people per capita. It's like divorces, though. You know, if if you are the sort of person who has one, you probably have three. That's a good point. And so they they tend to to weight the the statistics accordingly. But 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 there it is, and that's the problem. So, you you know, how do you ever get them back, for instance? I think you eliminate them and you have to wait a couple of generations to get rid of them. It's not like in Australia where 
where you've got a mass shooting, you pass gun regulation right. restrictions. Oh yeah, that's, and then you know, I mean, in a couple was, of years, and that was astonishingly that was effective. Yeah. At least, yeah. I mean, it sounds like gun ownership is resurging in Australia, yeah. but the gun violence problem has never like come back to that point. So that was an that effective was, strategy, but that was also. It's an entirely different context, right? In a country that could withstand and even welcome and agree to that. Right. Yeah. So the background checks is something, obviously, that uh, Trump was tweeting about. Others were referring to it, both both the governor in in, um, Dayton and and, uh, in El Paso, I think, were referring to it. And then, too, like the mental health issue. I mean, it's all these sort of... That's. I think, though, a lot of people this week are receiving that as a bit of a cheap red herring. Like, it's a convenient dodge. But although you did hear, I mean, Mitch McConnell, at least appearing to entertain the idea, I would say, of of talking about something in the Senate of, of I mean, right. I think he refused to be pinned down on what and who knows that. I mean, the most likely thing is that that's just saying something palatable amid a huge wave of public anger and it'll just fade away. Like and and it's the sad thing, too, is like they're not going to I doubt they would you know, call on Congress to end the August recess or, or, or the Senate, too. So, I mean, by the time they come back, it'll sadly time Everything will have passed. settled again. We'll be into the next mass shooting news cycle. Yeah. yeah. The hope is there's a concept in political science called the civilizing force of hypocrisy, which I think is particularly useful. I mean, it's Please useful for explain. everything, but it's specifically particularly useful for this, which is you might be a hypocrite, but if you get held to your hypocritical standards despite being a hypocrite, then it has a a civilizing effect. So it could be that politicians go and pander and they say, okay, yeah, we'll think about it, we'll talk about it. But if the people decide to say, okay, well, we're going to hold you to that, despite the fact that you're a hypocrite, well, now it's on the agenda, now there's some movement. So if people say to O'Connell and Trump, okay, well, get on with the background checks and we're going to, we've got an election and we're going, this is one of the issues that we're, by, through which we're going to evaluate you, then you might get some movement, um, not despite the, the hypocrisy, but in fact because of it. So there is a little bit of hope there, I think. And it sounds like that rests with the people, like that rests with yeah. the reaction of the people. Well, this is the problem is, is that it ultimately is, you know, who's to blame? I mean, yeah. you, you could say everyone's to blame, which is to say no one's to blame. But but if people voted for politicians who ran on gun control and didn't vote for politicians who didn't, then politicians who ran on gun control wouldn't win. Or, sorry, ran against gun control wouldn't win. I, I think the problem is not enough Americans support um gun control yet, which isn't to say not, not many Americans, because many Americans do support mm-hmm. gun, but when I say enough, I mean a sufficient yeah. number to incentivize politicians who aren't otherwise going to be It's also possible for the hypocrisy to reside in the people too, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Actually, that's oh, yeah. a huge part. Yeah, I mean, it's revolutionary people who, it, it, many of them are still worried that yeah. King George is going to come and, and quarter soldiers in their houses. Do you think they really are, though? I like, don't, and I'm not, I don't mean to cross-examine you on that. I mean, I, th- like, I do. I, I just, I mean, maybe because I'm Canadian, that talking point, that worry seems so psychologically I, I don't think it's general. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's generalized, but but if you, there are huge pockets. I mean, yeah. especially rural Americans and and Southern Americans, who very yeah, deeply are skeptical of government. I right. guess I always wondered if it was a reverse engineered sort of yeah. somewhat historically based explanation for just I like my guns. Well, no, because I mean. I, I, you know, it's very convenient to sort of talk about the character of a people, like sort of the revolutionary yeah, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But there, I say it's less about character, more about path dependence and and values that get passed along, like genes. And so there is a bit of that in the United States. In the same way that you could look to France and say, what is it about France where there always seems to be a massive strike? In Canada, you couldn't get people to strike for any reason other than maybe um, the price of a coffee at Tim Hortons going up. But in, in France, people will take to the streets en masse. 
there is a, a, revolution, a revolutionary culture in France that doesn't exist elsewhere. I think it also exists in the U.S. Yeah, right? so maybe it's not overtly at the top of their mind, but it's this subconscious sort of feeling that that's there, right? Um, yeah, but I, it's socialized. I, it's socialized, right. But I, I'm curious, like, you, to the point that if you vote in a president who's got gun control on their agenda, then that will change it. I mean, like Obama was... And there was shootings that happened during many shootings that happened during his uh, tenure, and and he wasn't able to be successful with any of that kind of legislation. So I mean, I don't I don't know how you even if you do vote in a a president who's got that at the top of their agenda, I don't know how progress is. Well, that's the other problem is that it, it the U.S. as a political system is fundamentally dysfunctional, yeah. right? It's yeah. That, you know, President Obama used all of his political capital to get health care, right? Such as it is. And another president would have to use all of his or her capital to get gun control, probably, and spend all your time on it. But the problem is the U.S. is fundamentally dysfunctional structurally. The the executive, as opposed to the legislative, as opposed to to the judicial. The system was designed to check and balance. What it's done is created um, gridlock in such a way that it's so deeply partisan and polarized that you can't get anything done. Mm -hmm. And the great ironic twist of political systems is that our system was designed otherwise, and has ended up being more productive, but also ended up with fairly useful checks in the way yeah. the U.S. system did. In political science over the years, it was a bit of a puzzle, is that you know, the U.S. presidential system called, at one point, America's most dangerous export, uh, worked only in the United States and not anywhere else. And then in recent years, we've learned that it doesn't work there either. It works <laughs> nowhere. It's just a bad system. Okay, well, we're going to end on a, a slightly p- more this positive note. This has been note. a pretty black week. <laughs> I, yeah, wow. Okay. Ottawa, our nation's capital, has been ranked third in McLean's annual Best Communities in Canada list. Can I get a hey for that? Hey, Ottawa. Woo. I miss Vancouver. Oh, yeah, you're from Vancouver. No, I'm from Peterborough. But oh, I, right, I, I lived right, in right. Vancouver for oh, that's right. eight years. Okay. Ten years? I lived in Well, I gotta time. say, your new home is top three, baby. Oh. It's not all uh, good news, though. We slipped back one point from last year. We were we were placed second last year. In 2017, we were first, so we were, we've slided a little bit downhill. Um, first place, right in 2019 is, is goes to Burlington, Ontario, uh, and second place goes to Grimsby. It is a, an annual um, analysis, and it's it's pulled from uh, data from 415 communities comparing factors like wealth, an economy, affordability, population growth, taxes, commute, crime, weather, access to healthcare, amenities, and culture. And then um, I'm sorry, we placed third despite weather. <laughs> <laughs> There is that. They, in although what it's important world? to note that they weighted the categories according to how they thought normal people would make a decision about where to live. Whether it's a comparatively small category, so maybe that's how we I dispute that. <laughs> but but the good news is if you go to the website, you can customize yeah, your you own can. ranking. So if weather is very important to you, you just turn that up to 11 and see where it gets you. If I do that, I'm going to end up, my Canadian community will be San Diego. I have it up here for you. So if you moved weather, oh, let's see. It will be Summerland, B.C., but look at that. We're getting yeah, closer. The beautifully appropriate. Put, now, now put affordability at the bottom. Okay. Afford- you know, this is a deeply theoretical exercise. Yeah, it's kind of fun, right? Yeah. If I was if I was a rich person who couldn't quite yeah. build my own weather machine, where would I live? Where would you live? <laughs> We're going to end up in Vancouver. You know, it's funny. You'd, you'd still be in Summerland, BC. Oh. That actually, that that's, that checks out. I think. <laughs> 
that checks out. No, it is a fun little tool, but it is it's interesting because um, like our so our top features are amenities, which we were talking earlier. It's a bit bit of an odd way to uh, to to summarize this, but it's what college and universities are nearby, which makes sense. Uh, but movie theaters, what movie theaters are nearby? Like Shannon said, not museums or other art, you know, cultural um, landmarks, but movie theaters and restaurants. Although Just, I think also one of the metrics in there is the percentage of the population employed in like culture industries rec. So uh, maybe that tangentially, but yeah, I, I found movie theater sort of ad- adorable. I, I just personally don't care that much. But, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. It's kind of auto. And then commute. So a walking versus transit, all that kind of stuff. And, and then health. So um, access to family doctors, specialists and doctor's offices per 100,000 residents and wait times, stuff like that, which Ontario, I mean, all the wait times are still brutal here, but... Um, I think comparatively, we do pretty well. Though. We do pretty well. You haven't been here that long, right, David? Sort of. I mean, I'm, I've been back a year. I lived here for oh, five okay. years during my undergrad and, and master's, and I, I was excited to come back. I had forgotten about some parts of it that I'm less excited about now, but it's been a nice year. I mean, it's... it's the weather is, I get it. It's it's for... Well, the summer's been a bit of a write-off. a rough winter yeah, to that's be introduced a, to yeah. Ottawa. Well, yeah, and then but then, and then, a, and then a rough summer. Yeah. I mean, it's been... <laughs> although it, not as bad as last year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Last year was hideous. Oh, I was... I, although I was in Europe um, researching the, this book I'm working on now in June and July, and I was there for the heat wave, and it was at yeah. the time the, uh, the, 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 the biggest heat wave or the, the most... Um, the hottest <laughs> temperatures in, in European history were, were recorded, and it's just been released that July is the was the hottest uh, month in human history in recorded human history. Yeah, I've heard. So this was supposed to be this was uplifting, to be light, and a bit of a, right. it all comes um, back to climate. No, I know it, no, it actually does feel does. that way. Yeah. Like just. It, it just started to feel to me anecdotally this summer like there were days and this was not a terrible summer for lengthy heat waves last mm-hmm. year was a lot worse I think mm-hmm. we had three weeks of a stretch there were days this summer where we just hid in the house like we couldn't bring our kids in the backyard because it wasn't worth trying to keep them hydrated and healthy and I feel like in an entirely unscientific irrational anecdotal way like I feel like that's the way this is going to play out yeah. like you're just going to get more summer days where you hide in your house in the AC with the blinds drawn because which, it's getting weird and so hard and you know the, the, the macabre twist of that is that it, this is a growing problem because the hotter it gets the more time we spend inside with the AC on right. and the more time we spend inside with the AC on the, the hotter it gets yeah, exactly. because yep. of, of it's such the a pollutants of the AC. It's a fun talker though, right? It's like It's talker. just it's a bar stool thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm proud of it. So there we go. Now, to conclude, it's a sad day here in the studio. It will be our last day of, of recording Thread This fall, uh, Shannon and David Reevely will be off covering the election. It's a busy time. I'll actually be heading off to start a new adventure, also help cover the election. Um, but I think I can speak on behalf of all three of us when I say it's been a real pleasure to speak to you, our audience, through the airwaves each Friday morning, hopefully helping you become more aware or just better understand uh, some of the top stories of each week. And personally, I've learned a great deal from Shannon and, and David. We miss you. And you too, David Mosscrop. Um, the Davids. <laughs> and above all else, it's just been straight up fun. It it's has been, been a lot fun. Of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot too. It's been a really great um, kind of learning curve for me. Yeah. And, uh, 
fun to beef up and chat about the news. Yeah, it is. We, we nerded out. I have a feeling it won't be the last time we'll be we'll be chatting on, on a podcast. But uh, in terms of 2020 Network, um, it will be alive and well going forward. You've got to stay tuned for Mossgrup's new Open to Debate uh, show coming up soon. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It's the most passive-aggressive justification for a long-form podcast you're ever going to hear, which is, well, where else are you going to do it? But I don't mean it to be, I don't mean it to be pretentious and passive-aggressive. What I mean was the idea was conceived thanks to the, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, um, through the meaning of two ideas. One was, uh, what if we sat down for 45 minutes at a time and had a serious discussion about a single issue that was relevant and important, but not necessarily breaking news. Where would you go to do that? There are very, very few places in this country you go to do that. And the second was, what if we remade the old William F. Buckley show Firing Line for Canada? <laughs> it was from a little, you know, I, I'm a social democrat, so it comes a little bit more from the left, but the concept was smart people sitting down for long-form conversations to talk about important things. Oh, I love that. And and off we go to the races. Oh, it'll be great. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to I've it. I've learned a lot about Firing Line and... Because I keep sending you texts yeah, I know. with little updates. You should read this. this. Yeah. Um, no, it'll be great. There'll also be, you know, obviously 2020 Live on the on the network and a few other things that we can't exactly talk about right now, but you got to stay tuned. So that's all for us today. Can I f- get your Twitter handles one last time? I am at S Proudfoot. That's a good question. I am, I'm thinking about this, at... Oh, boy, come on. David <laughs> underscore... <laughs> Mosscrop. I, I couldn't remember. There's some poor guy yeah, who has get... either has an underscore or doesn't have an underscore that sometimes get uh, tagged into right. the abuses that I, that that I suffer. Face. Okay, well. So I, I think might... there's an underscore. Okay. <laughs> and I'm at Turnbull Sarah. Uh, have a great weekend and thanks again for listening. Cash has been around for thousands of years, but Canadians are increasingly turning to new methods such as mobile wallets and contactless solutions to make everyday payments. No matter what the future of payments holds, Interact will be there to help Canadians transact with confidence across multiple platforms and devices. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.